Welcome to the Terry Podcast, Tales from Near and Far, read to you by Pratham Data. A Child's History of England, by Charles Dickens, read to you by Pratham Data. This is where we are. Round about 1429, England's controlling Paris and Rouen, while the Burgundians, the English are white, control Reims. This is where Joan of Arc, this little girl, or this young girl, with a lot of vim and vigour, associated with her own sense of God's command to her to go and liberate France from the English and the Burgundians and give the Dauphin the claim to the throne and turn him into Charles VII. She does that with such alacrity that it alarms the Burgundians and the English about how powerful her reach might be. But after the Dauphin becomes Charles VII and he's crowned in the Cathedral of Reims, Joan of Arc, or Le Pucelle d'Orléans, or the Maid of Orleans, wants to return home. But the Dauphin says, no, I owe you a debt of gratitude and you should stay with me and be somebody of substance by me. As Shakespeare said, uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. Joan of Arc realises that all this glory that followed her might also come about to haunt her. And this is where we start again. It was not to be. And she continued helping the king. She did a word for him in alliance with Friar Richard and trying to improve the lives of the co-soldiers and leading a religious and unselfish and a modest life herself beyond any doubt. Still, many times she prayed the king to let her go home and once she even took off her bright armour and hung it up in a church, meaning never to wear it more. But... The king always won her back, and she was of any use to him, so she went on and on and on to her tomb. When the Duke of Bedford, who was a very able man, began to be active for England, and by bringing the war back to France, and by holding the Duke of Burgundy to his faith to distress and disturb Charles very much, Charles sometimes asked the maid of Orleans what voices said about it. But the voices had become, very like ordinary voices in perplexed times, contradictory and confused, so that now they said one thing and now said another, and the maid lost credit every day. Charles marched onto Paris, which was opposed to him, and attacked the suburb of Saint-Honneau. In this fight, being again struck down into the ditch, she was abandoned by the whole army. She lay unaided among a heap of dead and crawled out how she could. Then, some of her believers went over to an opposition maid, Catherine of La Rochelle, and said she was inspired to tell where there were treasures of buried money, though she never did, and then Joan accidentally broke 
the old, old sword, and others said that her power was broken with it. Finally, at the siege of Compiègne, held by the Duke of Burgundy, where she did valiant service, she was basely left alone in the retreat, though facing about and fighting to the last, and an archer pulled her off her horse. Oh, the uproar that was made and the thanksgivings that were sung by the capture of this one poor country girl. Oh, the way in which she was demanded to be tried for sorcery and heresy and anything else you like by the Inquisitor General of France and by this great man and by that great man until it is wearisome to think of. She was bought at last by the Bishop of Beauvais for 10,000 francs and was shut up in a narrow prison, plain Joan of Arc again and made of Orleans no more. I should never have done if I were to tell you how they had Joan out to examine her and cross-examine her and re-examine her and worry her into saying anything and everything and how all sorts of scholars and doctors bestowed their utmost tediousness upon her. Sixteen times she was brought out and shut up again and worried and entrapped and argued with until she was heartsick of the dreary business. On the last occasion of this kind she was brought into a burial place at Rouen dismally decorated with a scaffold and a stake and faggots and the executioner and a pulpit with a friar therein and an awful sermon ready. It is very affecting to know that even at that pass the poor girl honoured the mean vermin of a king who had so used her for his purposes and so abandoned her and that while she had been regardless of reproaches heaped upon herself, she spoke out courageously for him. It was natural in one so young to hold to life. To save her life, she signed a declaration prepared for her, signed it with a cross, for she couldn't write that all her visions and voices had come from the devil. Upon her recounting the past and protesting that she would never wear a man's dress in future, she was condemned to imprisonment for life, on the bread of sorrow and the water of affliction. But on the bread of sorrow and the water of affliction, the visions and the voices soon returned. It was quite natural that they should do so, for that kind of disease is much aggravated by fasting, loneliness and anxiety of mind. It was not only got out of Joan that she considered herself inspired again, but she was taken in a man's dress which had been left to entrap her in her prison and which she put on in her solitude, perhaps, in remembrance of her past glories, perhaps because the imaginary voices told her. For this relapse into the sorcery and heresy and anything else you like, she was sentenced to be burned to death. And in the marketplace of Rouen, in the hideous dress which the monks had invented for such spectacles, 
with priests and bishops sitting in a gallery looking on, though some had the Christian grace to go away, unable to endure the infamous scene. The shrieking girl last seen amidst the smoke and fire, holding a crucifix between her hands, last heard calling upon Christ, was burned to ashes. They threw her ashes into the river Seine, but they will rise against her murderers on the last day. From the moment of her capture, neither the French king nor one single man in all his court raised a finger to save her. It is no defence of them that they may have never really believed in her, or that they may have won her victories by their skill and bravery. The more they pretended to believe in her, the more they had caused her to believe in herself. And she had ever been true to them, ever brave, ever nobly devoted. But it is no wonder that they, who were in all things false to themselves, false to one another, false to their country, false to heaven, false to earth, should be monsters of ingratitude and treachery to a helpless peasant girl. In the picturesque old town of Rouen, where weeds and grass grow high on the cathedral towers, and the venerable Norman streets are still warm in the blessed sunlight to the monkish fires that once gleamed horribly upon them, have long grown cold. There is a statue of Joan of Arc, in the scene of her last agony, the square to which she has given its present name. I know some statues of modern times, even in the world's metropolis, I think, which commemorate less constancy, less earnestness, smaller claims upon the world's attention, and much great impostors. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please comment and please like it and subscribe. Please do let me know if there are certain tales from whichever part of the world you might be in that you would like me to read. Thank you.